Welcome to the radio ministry of Cedar Grove United Methodist Church. May God fill you and transform you through the work of the Holy Spirit. Now for some music and then Pastor Brian Bowley. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart. I want to see you. I want to see you. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart. I want to see you. I want to see you. To see you, I lifted up, shining in the light of your glory. Pour out your power and love as we sing, holy, holy, holy. Our gospel reading is from the Gospel of John, the 10th chapter. Then came the festival of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was in the temple courts walking in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews who were there gathered around him saying, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you do not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. do a quick prayer here for the people of Ukraine. Heavenly Father, once again we lift the people of Ukraine and the people of Russia up to you. We also today lift the people of Poland, of Romania, of Hungary, and all the other countries who have taken in refugees from Ukraine. May the Christian witness of those who travel and those who welcome affect hundreds, hundreds of thousands, and millions of people that they may come to know your Son through all these generous deeds and all the welcoming and all the stories of miraculous savings. This we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, over the last three weeks, we talked about fear and we've talked about loneliness, and we've talked about how the great, wonderful events of Easter can take the 
all of these problems away from us. Today I want to bring these themes together and I want to talk a bit about the promises and power of Jesus for our life today and in the future. For Easter affects us even today, 2,000 years after that great event. First though, I want to give you a quick lesson about our earlier reading of the 23rd Psalm. You know, in English Bibles, since the original King James Version over 400 years ago, it's become the standard practice to translate the original name of God as Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. This is the translation of the original name in the Hebrew, which is Y-H-W-H, we pronounce Yahweh. Now, we also see in our Bibles the word Lord with just the capital L and the small O-R-D. That's the translation of a word Adonai, which means Lord. So, if you see it all in caps, it is Yahweh, the, name, the personal name of God that was given to Moses when he asked, Who are you? And if you see it without all caps, then it's Adonai, just Lord, a ruler. So keep this in mind as we go through all this. 2,000 years ago, in Jerusalem, the city was a city of festivals. Several times a year, the population more than tripled as Jews from all over the Holy Land and from throughout the empire came to these festivals. There was the festival of Passover, most famous. Celebrates the escape from the Egyptian slavery that happened in the early spring. Passover was where a lamb was sacrificed to free the people from death. It was on Passover that Jesus was sacrificed to free us from death. And that's why he is known as the Lamb of God. There was the festival of Pentecost, celebrating the, the harvest of the first fruits, which happened 50 years 50 days later, around the end of May, it was at Pentecost that the first mass wave of Christian baptisms happened. Then later in the year, there was the festival of the New Year, Rosh Hashanah, around the end of September. It was followed quickly, just a couple days later, by the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, when all Jews asked God for forgiveness for their sins. And then a, a week or so later, we had the Festival of Tabernacles in early October when everyone built tents or, or temporary shacks and lived, them, lived in them for a week. They went camping to remember the 40 years in the wilderness after the escape from Egypt. And then, then in the winter, in the midwinter, there was the Festival of Dedication. Also known as the Festival of Lights, we know it as Hanukkah. It was more recently begun. Whereas most of these festivals began about 15, 1600 BC, this festival began in 168 after the temple had been desecrated by a, a Greek general, Antiochus Epiphanes. He put a pig on the altar, the most despised animal he could have possibly put there, and he sacrificed it there. And this led to a rebellion by the Maccabee family a successful revolt. They threw him out and took over and for a couple hundred years until the Romans conquered Ju Jerusalem and Judah was an independent state again. Well, it was the time of the festival of dedication and Jesus went to the temple. 
He was walking and teaching in the large area known as Solomon's Colonnade. Huge stone pillars supported the roof to keep the sun's rays off the worshipers. Many Jews gathered around Jesus asking if he was the Messiah, the promised Savior of Israel who would lead a revolt, they thought, and throw out the hated Romans as well as the foreign king, Herod Antipas. For like many people today, many of the people of Israel were more focused upon the politics of the day, looking for a political leader when they should have been focused upon their own eternal souls. Like many people today, they looked to Jesus as a leader for what he could do to their enemies rather than what he could teach them about living a stress-free life, a happy life, an eternal life. Just like many people today, they did not realize what their hatred of the enemy, in their case the Romans and their ruler King Herod, what this hatred was doing to destroy their own souls and shorten their lives. They could not keep a proper perspective that all politics is short-term in God's eyes and in the eyes of those who live eternally. For what difference does it make who rules a country for a couple of years, who rules for four years or even eight years when it's placed up against an eternal life for which 10,000 years is just the beginning? The crowd asked Jesus, If you're the Messiah, tell us plainly. Their impatience comes across very strongly in the next question. How long will you keep us in suspense? They ask him. And Jesus, the eternal Son of God, countless centuries old, who was present before time and the universe began, through, through whom the Apostle John tells us that all things that were created were created. He looked back at them. He probably thought, you know, I hung the stars. I walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. I ate lunch with Abraham before my angels destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. I spoke to Moses at the burning bush, and I met Joshua as he approached Jericho. My prophets have spoken to y'all for 1,500 years about who I am and what I would do when I came to you. And you still don't get it, do you? But instead, Jesus said, I did tell you, but you did not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me. And the crowd may have remembered the healings and the exorcisms, the feedings of the 4,000 and the 5,000 people at a time from just a basket full of food, the giving of sight to the blind, of hearing to the deaf, and the ability to walk to the paralyzed and the lame even the miraculous raising of the dead. Jesus continued, But you do not believe because you're not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. And surely many in the crowd return their minds to that 23rd Psalm, The God Yahweh is my shepherd, I shall not want. Jesus continued to tell them how he leads his sheep. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. And the thoughts of the crowd may have moved to the last line of the 23rd Psalm. And I will dwell in the house of Yahweh forever. Clearly, Jesus was claiming to be the good shepherd of Psalm 23, perhaps to be Yahweh himself. 
And he continued, My father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand. And now it appeared he was claiming to be Yahweh's son, and the crowd was a little confused. But then Jesus drove the point home. He said, I and my father are one. A direct claim to be one with God the Father. Yahweh, the name given to Moses at the burning bush when Moses asked, Who shall I say has sent me? The bush had replied, I am that I am, in ancient Hebrew, Yahweh. This claim of Jesus to be one with God was not lost on the crowd. They picked up stones to stone him. We are stoning you for blasphemy because you, a mere man, claim to be God, they said. And Jesus answered, why do you accuse me of blasphemy? Because I said I'm God's son. Don't you believe me unless I do the works of my father? Don't believe me unless I do the works of my father. By do them, even though you don't believe me, believe those works. That you may know and understand that the father is in me and I am in the father. And again they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. Now, if you're a person who attends church two or three times a year, this claim of Jesus to be God may come as, shock, as a shock to you. But it's a core teaching of Christianity that Jesus was God walking upon the earth in a complicated, complex manner that we don't fully understand. But it's important for a complete understanding of Christianity to know that he was God on the earth. Jesus was not just a man who spoke with God and taught people about God. Jesus was not just a wise teacher. A careful reading of the Gospels, particularly John's Gospel, shows us that Jesus would not leave it at claiming to be a wise teacher. He claimed to be God's Son, one with God, part of God on earth. And there is no mistaking this when we read those Gospels, especially John's. Jesus was part of God, as in God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. You've heard that before. And this is a key difference in our understanding of who God is from the God spoken of in other religions like Judaism or Islam. Where those two religions speak of God who is in heaven, Christianity also speaks of the God-man who came to earth, who experienced all the ordinary struggles of childhood, and being a teenager, of being a young man, our God was arrested and tried and beaten and killed for the crime of claiming to be God. Our God is not only a spirit, a spirit being in heaven, God the Father, and a Holy Spirit who inhabits the universe. But our God is a flesh and blood man with a human body who died upon a cross 2,000 years ago so that our sins would be paid for and forgiven if we recognized the God nature of the man Jesus who sacrificed himself upon that cross for us and we chose to follow him. And our God came back to life on a Sunday morning nearly 2,000 years ago after promising that his sheep, the people who follow him, should have eternal life and should never perish because Jesus and the Father are one. Surely God the Father endorsed those claims through this resurrection because the resurrection was seen by over 500 people proving that the words of Jesus are indeed 
the words of God. The God of other religions is simply seen, said to simply exist alone. And so those ideas people have of God are the ideas of a stern father, a God who sets and enforces the rules and is ready to punish rule breakers. But the portion of the Christian God, our God, who came to earth as Jesus, he also had an earthly mother, a mother who nursed him, who kept him clean, who taught him to speak and walk and tie his sandals. Mary, the mother of Jesus, had great responsibility for his success, as do all mothers for their children. Jesus had a mother who loved him dearly, who gave him grace and forgiveness as most mothers give their children. And because of this, Christianity is more than simply obeying a set of rules. It's about the forgiveness and love that God gives to people who admit their wrongdoing and who ask to be forgiven. It's about the grace of God that Jesus shows us as Mary showed her son that. It's become the fashion of the time to blame our mothers for every hurt, every problem that we have. Everything that we struggle with in our lives as teenagers and adults must be the fault of something our mothers did. Either they were too controlling, or they were too permissive, too kind, or too strict, too focused upon our behavior, or not caring enough. Helicopter mothers who stayed too close or uncaring mothers who left us to our own devices. It's easy for us to blame our mothers. Hollywood movies and television shows do it all the time. If only we hadn't had the mothers we did, we'd have a happy life. Of course, I think this tells us an awful lot about the people who write Hollywood movies and television shows in their own lives and relationships. For this idea that it's all dear mother's fault, gives far too much power to mother and far too little power to our own choices and God's plan for our lives. You may be sitting here with your mother today. Be thankful for what she's done in your life. You, there have been times when she made you work harder than you wanted, when she scolded you, when she put you through hardships, because struggles build emotional strength just as exercise builds physical strength. Those struggles have made you stronger, and she knew you'd need to become strong. Just as she protected you from many injuries and struggles that she knew you couldn't handle at the time. Be glad if you're sitting with your mother today. We don't know how long we will have them. My wife Sandra lost her mother when she was six years old. Jesus looked down upon from the cross to see his mother Mary standing there on the day of his death. The time with our mothers and fathers is precious, and the Old Testament tells us to honor our fathers and mothers that we may live long. And one way you can honor your mother is to ask her why she attends church so often, why she believes Jesus will give her eternal life, why what she thinks is important in life. Studies have shown that families that attend the same church regularly tend to stay together. If you are a younger mother, you might start planning today for your family to stay closer together as you all grow older by insisting that the entire family attend church together almost every week. 
Now, why does this happen? Why do families who worship together stay together? It's because we live in a world where there are radically different philosophies, radically different ideas about living, radically different ideas about how to be successful. Have you noticed that? When a family attends the same church together each week, those different ideas that are given to us by various teachers and television shows and podcasts and Facebook posts, they're brought back to reality by a regular time spent with family and wise friends who rely upon wisdom that has been seen by millions of people around the world for thousands of years as wise and useful and good. Now, lest you think I'm an old fuddy-duddy, I'll tell you, I, I consider myself a modern, technically savvy, scientifically literate person. I've studied physics and electronics, computer science, business, education. I once owned an internet business and created the website and ordering software myself. I love reading science fiction and watching science fiction TV shows. And I solved a technical problem in the design of the International Space Station. When COVID hit, I was quick to go online at my former churches. And then when I came here, we expanded even more. But I've also learned to appreciate that new and popular ideas, particularly about how to live life or how to relate to other people, often are not wise ideas. I've come to understand that the wisdom that developed over the centuries about what are good ideas and what are bad ideas is worth learning and following, even when we don't understand it. Despite all the criticisms of the old ways by our celebrities and our politicians and our Hollywood writers, there is wisdom in the old ways. It is a wisdom which ultimately improves our lives. And much of that wisdom has its foundation in the 66 books that make up the Christian Bible. And so I study it. And I develop sermons based upon what that wisdom is every week. You know, there's many ideas floating around today. We'll hear a politician or a celebrity say, if only we'd, and then they put forth a plan that will save our society, that will make life perfect and easy for us. But what does the Bible say about this? In Revelation, the Apostle John wrote down his vision given to him by Jesus. John says that in the throne room of God, there are countless people and angels who have followed the teachings of Jesus, who have arrived in eternal life, and who sing, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. You want to know the answers to life, to eternity, to finding peace? Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb who is Jesus Christ. Salvation is not found in the teachings of a particular politician or celebrity. Even the man or woman who becomes president does not have the power to save us, to overcome the problems of the world, to turn this country into paradise. No, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. In a few days, we will officially vote for candidates for many offices. Some of you have probably voted already. Our televisions and mailboxes have been filled with commercials from candidates telling us why we should vote for them, and in many cases telling us how evil their opponent is. So how should a Christian vote? Well, the first rule is vote. 
When we live in a society which allows voting, which many around the world do not, we should vote if we're of legal age or legally allowed. It's a great privilege to be able to choose our leaders. It's something that was almost unheard of in biblical times, for they lived under the rule of the Roman emperor, who was chosen in the old-fashioned way. He beat people up, he won military victories, and he kept his military around to make sure that what he wanted done got done. He became ruler for life and appointed all the lower-level leaders, including many of the kings who were supposedly in charge of different territories. Those early Christians who lived then proved that it's not necessary to live in a democracy or a republic to be a successful Christian, but it is easier to live out the commands of Jesus when we can choose our leaders. So vote if you can vote. The second rule of the Christian voter is that God gives us the government that we deserve. If we vote for mean and nasty men and women, we'll get a government that's mean and nasty. If we vote for pleasant, wise men and women, we'll get a government that's more pleasant and ruled by wisdom. It's, is it more important to us that a particular man or woman pledges allegiance to a party or another particular man or woman or a set of policies or rules? Then we'll get a government devoted to that party or that person or those policies or rules. Or is it more important to us that a particular candidate is at their heart, a person who trusts that God will give direction, that the Holy Spirit will give guidance, that Jesus' commands will be followed? Our choices will determine the government that God gives us, for God wants to teach us wisdom by honoring most of our choices. And hopefully we learn by watching what happens when we vote a particular way. And hopefully we can give grace to people and to candidates just as God has given us grace. The third rule of the Christian voter is to avoid the trap that this is the most important election ever. You know, I've collected graphics from every election this century which promise each time that this is the most important election ever. No, it isn't. For in two years, there'll be another election, and then there'll be another election after that. And if by some chance our democracy totally fails, and a man or woman takes over to give us a dictatorship, then we need to keep in the back of our minds that while the Roman Empire survived as a dictatorship for 500 years, Christianity grew and prospered and even took over the empire during that time. And it was another 1,300 years before the first democratic republic was founded. And during all those centuries, kings and emperors ruled Christian nations as more or less dictators, and Christianity flourished. So I'd like you to put inside the cover of your Bible the words, it's only an election, don't panic. As the Apostle John wrote in Revelation, the angels and multitude of people before the throne of God remind us, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Salvation does not come from a mortal man or woman, a political party, a candidate, or even an earthly king. And those who think so, well, they deserve what they get. So voting in an election is actually, you see, not a vote about the candidates. It's a vote that explains what's important to you. Is it party? Is it a personality? Is it a judgment of character? Your vote tells you and anyone else that you let know about that vote what's important in your life. 
Is it getting even with someone else? Or is it about learning to live at peace with others, including our Creator? Just as you do on Sunday mornings, tells people, including your mother and God, your children, your grandchildren, it tells people what's important in your life. What do you want to proclaim is important in your life? What you do on Sunday mornings will do that. What we say and do tell others about what it is that we understand and what we have learned. You know, 150 years ago, a man traveled from America to Britain. And as the ship traveled, it passed the spot where just a couple months earlier, his wife and daughters had been on board a ship which collided with another. All four daughters drowned when their ship sank. Their mother telegraphed home, distraught. Horatio Spafford, the man, wrote the words to our next hymn that evening that his ship passed over their watery grave. These words tell us what decision Spafford had made as Jesus, his Lord, led him through his grief. Would you join me in singing hymn number 377, It Is Well With My Soul. Cedar Grove United Methodist Church and Pastor Brian Bowley would like to thank you for listening to last week's pre-recorded sermon. Join us live this Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. and on Facebook. We are located on Route 47, a mile and a half east off I-77 just across from WVU Parkersburg campus. Donations may be mailed to Cedar Grove UMC, 168 Old Turnpike Road, Parkersburg, West Virginia, 26104. Or you can text the word GIVE to 1304-244-1903 or visit our website, cedargroveunitedmethodist.org and click on the GIVE tab. This will bring up a form where you can determine how much you would like to give. Thank you and God bless you in your life.